I'm so glad to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. One thing I have always despised, non-compete clauses for workers. There's a proposal floating around to do away with them nationally, and I'm so on board getting rid of this garbage. And also, I want to make sure that you understand that you have lost yet another excuse to save more money for retirement because of the new rules in place here in 23 for 401ks and IRAs that let you contribute more money. Okay, so covenants not to compete are hideous, gross creatures. They are mean-spirited beyond measure. There are a small number of people out there who have key inside information. Think corporate executives. That it is reasonable, and in fact, it's good public policy, to allow companies to restrict their movement for a period of time so they can't take key inside corporate secrets and go somewhere else and give away the information to a competitor or go start a competitor with the inside information they have. But that's not how covenants are being used now. Remember the thing with the sandwich shops that were making their delivery drivers sign covenants not to compete? So if they got laid off at the sandwich shop or they quit, they couldn't go work for another sandwich shop for a lengthy amount of time. I mean, come on. Another industry that has these mean-spirited things that are just nonsensical, private security companies. You go to work for one and you can't go to work for another one for, depending on the state, a number of years. I mean, nuts. This stuff is nuts. Now, I saw a chart from the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis of what industries have covenants not to compete. You know, what percent of workers are covered. Now, in the scientific field, roughly one in three people are covered by one. Finance and insurance, one in five people. Manufacturing, one in six. Retailers? Okay, you must be kidding me. A retail store saying that somebody working on the floor can't go work for somebody else in a retail business? They don't know inside secrets. They don't know trade secrets. The Federal Trade Commission, which I doubt has the authority to do this, I think it's symbolic because it's going to be challenged in court right away when it's adopted, but they are going to outlaw covenants not to compete. So the thing is, it's getting in the conversation. Because this is an abuse. And what happens is lobbyists go to state legislatures and, you know, they take care of the lobbyists, take care of the members of the state house or state senate and, you know, take them on trips and buy them meals and all that. Take them to big sports events and concerts. And then they do this preferential legislation for them that puts through these stack deck, incredibly awful covenants not to compete and so it is wrong it's not this isn't great this is wrong 
to restrict somebody's ability to earn a paycheck. And I know that the people elected in state legislative bodies don't know what's going on with everyday people. That most members of state legislative bodies are people who are generally higher income. Many of them are professionals and they just don't get it or choose not to get it. And the people they hang out with are the ones that want this stuff. And it's about time that things were about what's best for the American people and not best for who has the money to buy the vote of a member of a legislative body. But covenants not to compete are so rotten terrible that I want you to know when you are looking for a job and you're being, what's the key HR phrase now? They call it onboarding. What is onboarding? It's like you're getting on a ship or something, getting on board. I mean, what a weird phrase. But anyway, you actually got to go through that stuff they want you to sign when you're being onboarded. And if you see a covenant not to compete, I would jump off. I would not go on board. And they're not going to negotiate with you on it. They're going to say, well, take it or leave it. Leave it. Get out of there. Do not work at a place that disrespects you so much that they want to destroy your ability to have a roof over your head, feed your family, and pay your bills out of just flat out meanness because that's all it is again if you are one of the few people who's a key insider who has key information that could harm an existing employer i get why a covenant might be necessary but you tell me how is it that massachusetts went from being the heart of the technology industry in the united states to becoming an also ran And California came from nothing to being so dominant in the technology field. I think the absolute key was covenants not to compete. Massachusetts had these brutal covenants not to compete. California doesn't allow them. And so people have this ability of job mobility that are really bright brainiacs in the tech field. And they don't want to work for anybody in Massachusetts who had these horrible covenants not to compete and i think that was one of the things that led to silicon valley i'm sure there are other factors but i think one of the factors was these covenants not to compete i think i like them what do you think krista yeah you seem to really love them (laughs) um i can't believe you made us sign them just kidding. Uh, Lauren in Delaware says, I received, do an, that. I received an email from a bank recommending that I access the equity in my home before prices fall. We have about $150,000 in equity. We don't have any home improvement projects or a current need for a HELOC, but is this something we should consider if home prices are going to go down? If not, do you have any suggestions of a way to protect the equity we have in light of the forecast that home prices will drop? So first of all, you're not protecting the equity in your home by setting up a HELOC. And that is very misleading of the bank to use that as a strategy to try to get you to initiate a home equity line of credit. If you go back to the financial bust that took place in the housing market from 7 to 12, What happened was people who had extracted a lot of home equity from their homes 
then were locked into the home and they were upside down. We heard from so many people who had done the home equity lines of credit, pulled the money out, and then were upside down in their house by enormous amounts of money, had no way to pay it back, and got foreclosed on. I mean, this is playing with fire. On the other hand, having a standby home equity line of credit, you can do many of them free or ultra low cost. Having that in place is a good strategy because there can be things that happen. You could have you know, a big repair bill suddenly at your house. You don't have the reserves to pay for it. And the home equity line of credit would be a good way to pay for an unexpected expense with your home. So if, in fact, home prices did collapse, which they're not going to this time, they're not going to collapse. Housing prices may be softening for a while, but they're not collapsing. Thing is, the lenders, when home prices collapse, immediately close people's standby lines of credit. We saw that back 7 to 12. So it's a, it's a concept that is not sound that's being pitched to you. D in California says, can I rent a car with my debit card? I don't have and cannot get a credit card. Uh, most car rental companies will permit you to rent a car with a debit card if you go through a pre-registration with them. The reason the car rental agencies are so anti-debit card is criminal car theft rings were using fake IDs and debit cards as the lowest risk possible way to steal cars. And these organized rings were then within hours having the cars chopped up at chop shops. If you're not familiar with chop shops, they're illegal organizations that take a car apart and sell the parts to body shops that may or may not know that stuff is going on. So that's why the car rental agencies require, if they will rent you on a debit card, they do require this advanced registration so they can verify you are who you say you are, your background, the rest. The other alternative, if you cannot qualify for a credit card, is get a secured credit card if you're routinely going to rent cars, and then you'd be able to present a credit card at the counter like other renters. Jordan in North Carolina says, I'm employed by a mid-sized company. A few months ago, our HR department sent out a company-wide email asking that all employees give our healthcare provider our checking account information for HRA reimbursement payments because the healthcare provider was no longer going to mail checks. The emails also indicated that failure to do so would result in the healthcare company denying claims and thus not getting reimbursed. Am I crazy for thinking this is absolutely bonkers? It is bonkers and it's terrible and the employer can almost certainly compel this or a forfeiture of the money. There may be some states that would not allow that under their state wage and hour laws, but I think this would be in most states a a permissible practice, although disrespectful of you and others as employees. The way you do this and limit the risk to yourself is open a separate account at an online bank. You pay no fees on those. Set it up for the reimbursement. Provide that account information, routing number and account number to the HRA plan, and then you won't have your money that you really count on at risk with somebody having that information following a hack or a dishonest employee 
potentially at the company that handles the reimbursements for your employer. But it is pretty brutal to say, you either do it our way and put your personal information at risk, or we're not going to give you your money. That is not a very warm, friendly employer you're working for. Doesn't sound like, does it? Uh, Coming up next, the new rules on contributions for this year for IRAs and 401ks mean that you can do more to create financial security in your life. I'm going to talk about that straight ahead. There are a lot of changes being phased in year by year through this decade involving retirement accounts because we've got roughly half of Americans who aren't getting there, getting enough money saved for retirement. And different things are going to go into effect different years over the next several. One of them is the rules for you being forced to, if you've been a good saver and you have money in retirement accounts, when you're forced to take it, keeps changing. So the law was 70.5 until three years ago, and then it went to 72. It's gone to 73 this year for people just going into that age, and then it's going to 75 in several years. So the idea is the law was set up to push people into spending their retirement money at a point where they might not really need it, and then much later in life, because people are living longer and maybe with more complications health-wise than we used to overall for getting the decline in living lifespans during COVID. And so people were getting later in life and they didn't have any money to live on. So this change with what's known as RMDs is a significant one and a very friendly one to people, particularly who live in families where the genetics are really friendly. People tend to live a lot longer than like in my family where the genetics are not friendly and we don't tend to live as long. Also, if you mess up on the complicated math of doing RMDs, the money that you're required to take out each year, the penalty for messing up is being cut in half and potentially to a fifth of what it was. And that's way overdue because the penalties were punitive and mean without purpose, really. They were not designed just to catch people who weren't doing what they were supposed to do and knew it. They were catching people who didn't do what the law requires, but didn't understand how RMDs work. And now if you fix it, the penalties are relatively small, and that's good. And so now the amount of money people can put in retirement accounts is going up. I mentioned that before, that there's a fair amount more you can contribute. So if you're already contributing, the, you were one of the few people contributing the max you could to a retirement plan at work. The limits are rising, and there's inflation adjustments that are going into effect through this decade that mean that things will automatically step up, like how much you can contribute to various retirement accounts. These are good changes. And there's another one that is really unusual that we've got to wait two more years for it to take effect. I just want to mention it in passing. 
people who ask me about the student loan thing, and I got this student loan debt, I feel like I can't save for retirement, but if I don't save for retirement, I miss the employer match. Believe it or not, starting in 25, if you can demonstrate you're paying money that you would have put into a retirement account, instead paying it towards student loan balance, your employer can still provide you with the match up to the max match they offer without you having to contribute money. The full regulations for that won't be clear till sometime next year, so there'll be nuts and bolts you got to know, but it's very positive for you. Another thing also being phased in, you know how employers now are allowed to automatically enroll you? We automatically enroll people in our 401k and then they can override it. But usually once people have that done, they contribute where otherwise they might not have. Now employers are going to be able to keep boosting the amount that they automatically take out of your paycheck year by year. And they're going to be able to do a maximum 10% of your pay instead of the 3% typically employers do now. And those amounts are going to keep rising until it can go to 15% that an employer can do. And the thing is, when you make minor changes, and I talk about increasing your contributions every six months, you don't really notice it, but the long-term benefit is huge. And I'm just giving you the quick windshield survey. The point is, you're going to get a lot of stuff if you work for a company that has retirement benefits. You're going to get these notices that look like the normal notices that you just throw right away when you get them or delete the email. Read them now because there may be enhanced benefits or additional money you can get through the employer-provided plans as long as you act on them and don't ignore them. Krista? This is from Allen in California. I ordered a garage door and installation from a big box company, and they estimate it will be five or six months before they can install Say it. Say what? That's typical. I, that's still happening. I know someone actually who ordered garage doors. Same thing. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've been saying the supply chain is healed. Why garage doors taking six months? They expect me to pay for it now on their credit card. Is this a good idea? Shouldn't I pay for it after it's installed? Okay, definitely don't do this. Don't do this. I mean, we went through this back in 20 and 21 with people that were paying the big box stores money up front for stuff that didn't come, didn't come, didn't come. And then they were trying to get their money back. They said, oh, too bad. And all the people with the furniture, when mm-hmm. that happened too, the furniture just never came. And they had all that money tied up. Don't do this at all. Terrible idea. Somebody wants you to pay up front for something when they can't even tell you exactly when they're going to do it. Don't get involved. And check local garage door companies and even chain garage door, you know, the big national players, that this is what they do instead of going to the big box. This is from someone who signed it, Tesla Customer No Service in Texas. As a Tesla owner, this story might strike a nerve, so brace yourself. As you know, Tesla was recently pushing fourth quarter deliveries, offering $7,500 in discount for deliveries taken by December 31st of 22. I ordered on December 22nd with an advertised delivery date of simply December of 22. Additionally, the Tesla app showed an estimated delivery of December right up till December 31st. 
why would Tesla, a company which produces near self-driving vehicles, not be able to accurately estimate delivery dates based on known variables, many of which they have control over? Alas, Tesla did not come through with their wildly misleading advertised delivery date. Since I will not receive the $7,500 discount and the Model Y performance is not eligible for the EV tax credit, I've purchased a used one instead. At this time, Tesla refuses to refund my $250 order fee. It seems like they knowingly mislike customers with this advertising on their website in order to capture as many non-refundable donations as possible for $250 for the deposit, knowing full well they'd not make these deliveries. Isn't this customer no service? Isn't this just poor customer service, bait and switch? What do you think? I agree completely. And I mentioned this recently that Tesla's customer no service model is fully in force. And the Tesla customer experience is fully broken. Tesla does not have its act together attitudinally or operationally and how customers are being treated on sales and service after the sale. This will cost them. You know, Tesla dominated electric vehicle sales in the world for a long time. And now uh, startups... And the traditional automakers all were like, huh, Musk was right. Everything's going electric. We got to get into this. And they're spending untold billions of dollars converting from gas engine companies to electric vehicle companies because the math is just going to work. So this is a thing that companies live and die by the culture they have. That's why there's a move right now by some large Tesla stockholders to force Tesla to hire a CEO who will run the company day to day and let Musk be the idea guy because the idea right now operationally is broken. It's often common that the visionary, the brilliant person who starts an enterprise is not the best person to operate it nuts and bolts moving forward. And I'd say that's where Tesla is right now. This is from Mike of Florida. I used to go through razors and blades at a pretty good clip. My wife mentioned that you said you could extend the life of a blade by drying off the water on it after every shave. 10 years later, I still use this tip and have only gone through one to two blades per year. She'll say something when I'm in the bathroom and I may respond, hang on, I'm clarking my razor. Oh man. My methodology includes shaking the razor until no water drops appear, drying it with a single sheet of toilet tissue. Do you have any updates? So we've had uh, engineering types tell us that it's terrible to do what I, I do, which dry with the towel, that you should actually blow dry your blade and then it will last for years. But I've been happy going a long, long time on a single blade. And as I shared an update recently, Mike, I've been using an electric razor most of the time now. How smooth do I look? Looks good. And the electric razor technology has improved so much. And I find I can shave much quicker with an electric razor than with the other one. And I paid $29 for my electric razor from Walmart, it's a Norelco, and it seems to work really well. So I've come up with a cheap thing in addition to using a physical razor. And so now my razor lasts like forever. The longest I went on a single blade, 14 months, 
which was probably four or five months longer than I should have gone with that blade. And I want to thank you for listening. We hope you'll consider signing up for our free daily newsletter. It's full of information to help you save more and spend less. Check out our newsletters at clark.com newsletters.